I got word from someone there was a Piper Cup at the top of the South Island and it may be available for training. So I got a hold of the guy who was pretty abrupt and said it's not available for training unless you got a hundred grand uh, you could buy it, but other than that I can't help you. And because he was a bit of a dick, I was like, yeah, no, that's, that's cool, I got a hundred grand. Um, where do we go from here? And the sort of phone went quiet and of course I didn't have a hundred grand, but you know, I just didn't like the tone of this guy. Eh? So uh, yeah, anyway, a, a friend went and checked out the plane and I bought it. G'day and welcome everyone to episode number 15 of On The Step with That Mallard Guy. As always, I'm your host, Dan Bolton. Amazing show coming at you today, guys, with an absolute legend, Shane McCauley, telling some incredible tales from his journey through bush flying, airlines, and into seaplane flying. It's an absolute belter. Now, don't forget to get in touch to say hello via thatmallardguy at hotmail.com or on my Instagram at thatmallardguy. If you're a regular listener, make sure you leave a review, especially via Apple Podcasts. They are much appreciated. Before we get into the show, folks, it is clear that the word unprecedented has been used an unprecedented amount of times over the last few months due to the obvious. But recently around the world, I've spotted some positive events occurring regarding seaplanes. So I'd like to start a seaplane news segment. With COVID-19 wreaking havoc on the aviation industry, affected operators are taking to the skies once again after closing down their businesses due to the virus. Australian operator Sydney Seaplanes yesterday announced they are back with flights to commence from July the 3rd on a restricted Friday to Sunday schedule with some of their destinations still in the process of opening their own doors. Staying in Australia and Kimberley Air Tours located in Kununurra, Western Australia, are already airborne once again. Last Saturday, the 6th of June, the combination seaplane and landplane operator started up their Bungle Bungle Air Adventure and Seaplane Sunset Drinks flights, which are available to book now. Kimberley Air Tours made headlines a month ago, coming up with a very crafty way of keeping their money coming in during the pandemic with a virtual, scenic flight accompanied with wing mount and cockpit footage as well as in-flight commentary becoming available for purchase via their website. It was unique enough to land owner Lee Rawlings a spot on the Weekend Today show advertising their exceptional idea. Well done to the team at Kimberley Air Tours. Across to the United States now and Florida-based Tropic Ocean Airways will be resuming their scheduled service routes to Great Harbour K and Bimini on the 1st of July. I spoke with CEO and owner Rob Cerevolo on episode 12 of On The Step and it's evident the hard work he and his team have put in behind the scenes during the COVID break is paying off. Also in the States, Isle Royale seaplanes based in Michigan are accepting reservations for trips beginning June the 27th. The Cessna 206 operator said in a post on Instagram, the Isle Royale National Park will continue to evaluate the possibility of a limited opening, with only the seaplane service providing transportation to the island. And finally to Canada, and Sea Air seaplanes have already opened up their scheduled services as of the 1st of June. Passenger seating capacities on scheduled flights will be reduced for social distancing purposes, whilst passengers will be required to wear facial masks for the flight duration. 
Canada's daily new cases of COVID-19 has been on decline since early May, however is still recording around 550 new cases per day. And that's the Seaplane News Headlines. Okay folks, it's time to jump into it. It's time to give the wife a call. Tell her you'll be adding a Piper Cub on floats to the home loan and as she comes running at you with a shotgun screaming profanities, you'll be keen to get going on the step. Right engine is turning. 12% fuel. A light. Alrighty, from Wanaka, New Zealand, uh, welcome Shane McCauley to On The Step, mate. How are you going? Yeah, good. Thanks, mate. Very good to have you on board, Shane. I really love your story and I'm really excited to get it out there. It's like airline pilot turned seaplane pilot, but uh, you're still in the airlines you know, at heart, I guess, uh, and from from the paycheck that's coming in, maybe in a few years' time anyway, but um, mate... Uh, Let's step back a little bit and talk a little bit about um, what got you into aviation altogether and uh, talk a little bit about growing up in uh, South New Zealand there as yeah. a son of a, an airline pilot. Yeah, yeah, it's a pretty pretty uh, well-documented story, I guess, the, the kid whose dad's an airline pilot. But um, it was probably, I don't think it was even so much the airline flying. Like, as a kid, we were pretty fortunate, like, in... Uh, 85 I think it was dad bought um, a Cessna 185 up in the states for like 30 grand and um, he brought it back and so as kids we literally just grew up in the back of this thing bombing around New Zealand and so that's probably where it started and then yeah once we got a little bit older going away on trips with dad you know sitting up in the in the cockpit of the 747 and that was all actually pretty normal it wasn't even that exciting it was just a (laughs) just what you did in life so yeah, I mean, we're so lucky in that never actually made a conscious decision to, to become a pilot. It just, there was never going to be another option. That was it, you know? Yeah. Um, I mean, people talk about bush flying over in Canada. and What's the bush flying scene like in New Zealand? Um, it, it's pretty much finished now. Like, um, it really kicked off back in the 70s when they were um, the government contracted colours to go in and, and kill the deer, um, the, the, the wild deer. They were becoming a real problem. So the helicopters were hunting the deer on the tops and then bringing the deer down to the riverbeds and, and airstrips and paddocks, gravel bars, whatever. And, and then the Cessna 180s were flying them out of the bush then. So that's when it sort of started, which morphed into sort of scenic work and, and adventure hunting and hiking in the 80s. And there were still dribs and drabs continued on sort of through to probably early 2000s. But since then, you know, New Zealand's so small, helicopters can do do the work of, you know, of probably two Cessnas, um, you know, one uh, squirrel or A-star can whip across the coast with, you know, seven people, hold out of gear and land you right outside the hut. So they've more or less taken over um, any bush flying now. Um yeah, so it's sort of becoming a lost art, whereas, whereas in Canada, you know, it's still going because the distances are so great, it's not commercially viable to operate choppers on those distances, so it, it lives on mostly in the in the form of floats. Yeah, absolutely. Now, mate, so you kind of grew up, obviously, exposed to aviation. Did you just get straight into flying as soon as you left school? Yeah, I did, mate. Yeah, when I was probably about eight or nine years old, we had a cub um, at one stage there. 
So I used to sit sit in the front of this cub and try and steer it round. And um, fifteen, I think I started properly, you know, going up with an instructor and and trying to fly the the Cessna one eighty. I was pretty lucky. Like I used to go up with Dad all the time. If he was going somewhere, I'd hop in and have a steer around. And yeah, fifteen, I started trying to do it sort of seriously with an instructor and that. And yeah, PPO at seventeen, commercial at eighteen. Left school and I was fortunate. There's a skydiving outfit uh, in Wanaka that just started up, and they had a, a Cessna 185. And having a bit of 180 time, um, they gave me a shot. But I actually got the job on a on the PPL. Um, yeah, right. Way back then, you could, yeah, it was a sort of one of those commercial operations you could do. Skydiving was an exemption you could do on a PPL, so that was awesome. So I used um, used that to get the rest of my hours up. And um, then there was uh, up the valley. There's a small town called Macarora, situated at the top of Lake Wanaka, right on the sort of the foothills which lead up into the Southern Alps. And they had a couple of uh, Cessna 185s. So during my during my training and everything, we always used to just go up there. And I was hassling the guy, probably from about the age of 16, to come and fly his 185s because I just I just thought that was the ultimate, you know, this this bush flying job, flying these 185s into into the mountain airstrips and across to the fjords and the west coast of New Zealand and up around Mount Cook and the Southern Alps. So um, once I'd been skydiving for, for not that long, he uh, he offered me the position up there. So I guess that was my first paying job yeah, when I was uh, 18. I used, to, I used to lie and tell people I was 21, like that made a big difference. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I remember when I was flying floats in Geelong, uh, you know, 21-year-old or actually I think I was at 20 when I started and, you know, people would be like every time oh you're too young to fly that would have yeah. also been about the same for you being 18 oh mate i look back at photos so puppy faced i could have told them i was 25 <laughs> it wouldn't have made any difference mate yeah, i wouldn't exactly. have gotten the plane with me <laughs> um but um yeah it was it was but by that stage i mean i started uh, when i was 13 i started work at the local supermarket and i'd been working you know from the age of 13 right through through high school and and then into this so it didn't it wasn't really that strange to be Working, you know, yeah. working and dealing with yeah. people. So I didn't think it was too much of a big deal. But, yeah, certainly some of the passengers getting in the plane were a wee bit. And a few of them, you know, like back then, you know, you, your first job, you're, you're filling in holes in the airstrips, you're washing planes, you're you're working in the office for weeks on end with no flying because, you know, the weather's no good. And you, at one stage I was selling uh, – we're a booking agency, so I was selling glacier tours and hikes and things when, you know, all I wanted to do to be flying and, you get some people come in and inquire about a, a scenic flight and so you'd book them up and then you'd drive them out to the airport and they sort of thanked you for the ride and everything. You said, oh, no, <laughs> I'm driving the plane also. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, it's a pretty similar, familiar story, I think, to most GA guys. Yeah, absolutely, except most GA guys aren't doing a 185 in the south of New Zealand. That's yeah. That's a, that's a different start to their aviation career. Yeah, yeah that was good. It was super challenging. Um, yeah, I mean, a lot of the airstrips up in the hills are pretty – pretty short or rough or you know in the top of a one-way valley but the boss was great he's a bit of a legend around the parts i mean he still still operates there now and um you know most flights would would be 0.1 or 0.2 up the valley into a strip and, and then back down so the first season you'd you'd sort of mainly do the scenic flights and a few trips across to uh, milford sound which is the fjords on the southwest coast there um and then you'd gradually ease into the strip so i did um sort of three and a half four seasons there and it wasn't until my last season that I was, you know, doing doing all the strips. So it eased you into it, and yeah, a lot of trial by fire. But yeah, it was it was interesting and, and fantastic. I never wanted to leave. In fact, a good friend of mine and I we were up there having a ball of a time, and um, all the tourist buses would come in every night, 
and we'd take them flying and then have, you know, a few beers and a barbecue that night with the tour group. And then you get up and do it all again the next day. You know, it was we were just living the dream as 18, 19-year-old kids. And we got offered a, a multi-engine job <laughs> flying Islanders. And my mate Billy, he turned it down. And, and then uh, I was considering it because it was a good career move. And I think we had a good night or two and decided, no, we'll just keep flying these 185s around the bush for a bit longer. And <laughs> yeah. um, at the time, yeah, no one could believe that, you know, but it was – and I think it's a sort of a something that comes through with me now is, is you know, I didn't know it at the time, but it, it just comes down to lifestyle, you know, and that, that's sort of what it's all about for for me. And and at the time, that was that was the dream, so I stuck with that for uh, another couple of years. And then I distinctly remember the day just sitting in the office there. It was been raining for two weeks, you know, hadn't flown, and yeah, got this this offer of a job flying for a company. They had a one eight five as well, um, but also caravans. Um, Flying between the North and South Island of New Zealand, it's called Sounds here. Yep. Um, so yeah, after three and a half years down here, shot up to to the North Island to yeah start with start with them, which is um, yeah IFR, VFR, strip work, day night, um, and I still got to fly the five round around the, the Marlborough Sounds, which is the top of the South Island of New Zealand. Doing the strip work that I love, so kept my hand in the in, in the good stuff and and sort of got my eyes. Open to the the IFR world, busy airports and things like that. Yeah, how how do you go from being like a, a pretty strong at heart bush pilot to stepping into the IFR world? Did you like the the new challenge of kind of more procedural instrument flying, or were you kind of always missing out on the kind of hands on VFR bush flying that you were doing down the south? It's actually I enjoyed it because um, it was single pilot IFR in the caravan, so it was you know pretty challenging to start with and. Wellington, where we're based, is notorious for uh, pretty strong winds and wild conditions. So, yeah, the IFR was challenging and that kept you busy. And, and, and the caravan being so slow, you know, you, you'd launch out of Wellington IFR and then try and cancel IFR as soon as you could and continue VFR and go and land at this pretty tricky little strip, actually, in the South Island. Um, so the, the mixture was fantastic, you know. Um, it was kind of the dream job. You know, a bit of everything, and at, at the same time, you know, in the background, I always sort of wanted that career progression ticking over. So it was, you know, turbine time and time and things. So it sort of ticked those boxes as well as we were we were still having good fun, you know. So yeah, yeah, it was a nice way to ease into it. And then where did that lead you to later on in your career? Uh, what was the next yeah. step after that? Yeah, south the flying caravans that around there, there was a sister, well, not a sister company, but a we had a common chief pilot with a sister company called Vincent Aviation, which had a base in Darwin and yeah. Wellington, New Zealand, yeah. And so they they got a contract um, where they suddenly needed a whole lot of pilots. And there were a couple of us at, at uh, Flying the Caravans that had done our HPLs, and they couldn't get anyone else for the HPLs. So um, we went across to uh, from the caravan straight to the left seat of the Beach 1900 and, um, yeah, just started flying those around New Zealand. Did a year up in Darwin, which was, was pretty good fun up there, right? Eh? Flying yeah, out to um, the communities. Absolutely, um, a bit, bit different to the yeah. uh, South Island of New Zealand, that's for sure. Yeah, yeah, it's crazy. Yeah, I remember Port Keats, uh, Kununurra, Boralula. Um, we used to go out to Groot Island, down to Cairns. Um, yeah, it was good. It was real good fun, actually. And then after that, once you got into that sort of twin engine multi IFR <laughs> stuff, it was like, right, let's just let's just get this done. You know, just let's just go to the airlines. So it's it's about 2007, I think, you know, the airlines were hiring. So um, shot off to 
uh, Air New Zealand and started flying the 737 for them. It was actually, it was while I was in Darwin, um, one of the girls at work, her husband uh, flew the Mallards. So, um, it, yeah, I don't know why, but that just really struck a struck a chord with me. So I looked into it a bit further and, and managed to go for a ride on the Mallards one day. And um, that was pretty cool. Like, it was a real eye-opener that you could you could fly a float plane, which is awesome, but also still have that multi-engine IFR, you know, technical component to it. It sort of seemed to tick all the boxes. But at the time, there was just no chance to, you know, to go on to that with no float experience or anything like that. So I didn't really give it much more than a, that would be nice. And yeah, shuffled off to the airlines. Mate, just stepping back a little bit there when you, in your Darwin days, um, yeah, you and I got connected on Instagram. And I think, was it true that you and I lived potentially like two doors down from each other, obviously <laughs> over different generations, but we lived like nearly at the same spot in yeah, Darwin? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, sixteen three hundred Casarina Drive. It was just <laughs> up from the um, what was the name of that pub? Uh, the, the Beachfront Hotel. It's still there. Yeah, mate, the still there. Yeah. Had a nice big Renault yeah. the other day, or, or, or a year ago oh, or yeah. something. It's looking pretty yeah. schmick these days, but <laughs> probably different. But no, it was great that lifestyle. I mean, living on the beach there, took the scooter to work every morning. Yeah, it was. Darwin was awesome. I loved it. Yeah, I'd, I'd and you were back. flying the nineteen hundred there, weren't you? Yep. Yep. Beach 1900. Um, in New Zealand, they had a couple of other. I think they had a 402 and a um, 406. We used to fly around to do the post yep. post runs at night and things like that. So, that, yeah, good time, all right? And everyone was the same age, you know. Everyone was the same thing. Nothing too serious. Lots of social activities. It was, yeah, it was a good time. Sounds like nothing's changed for sure. Um, no. Now, mate, uh, so you've made it to Air New Zealand now. So this is where we are at your career. Uh, yep. You're flying the 737 and... I believe you take the first bit of time away from Air New Zealand to go on a bit of an adventure, and that's going to lead later on down to where you are now. Can you talk to a little talk to us a little bit about what led up to that, and and what kind of flying you were doing in that little break? Yeah, yeah. So yeah, the seven three seven job was really cool. It was back before the airlines got sort of too serious about you know stable approach criteria and the rest of it. So um, it was good fun, but then after after about 12 months, my eyes were starting to glaze over, and I was flying with a guy who knew a guy who knew a guy, and one day he just said to me, hey, are you still interested in a, a bit of an adventure? And my, sort of my eyes lit up and said, yeah, what's, what's on? He said, look, I've got this mate who's starting up an operation in the Middle East uh, in a 737 flying car, um, a little bit sketchy, VFR, IFR, you know, are you interested? And I said, yeah, it sounds great. So emailed the guy. Sketch is my middle name. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Emailed this guy in the Middle East. He got back and said, you know, when can you start? Um, so what comes to another sort of crux of this type of lifestyle is you've got to go home and say to the missus, hey, um, do you want to go and live in Bahrain? And she says, you know, where is it? And you say, well, I'm not really sure. Let's, you know, look on Google. And um, and then you talk her into going too. So, um that's quite critical in any of these operations. So anyway, so six weeks later, I was sitting in the in a seven three seven in, in uh, Bahrain, flying down to um, it was Doha was one of my first flights, and then yeah, the, the next four years was um, was crazy. Um, got my command on the seven three after about twelve months or so, and I think my first charter was flying a a walrus, a sea lion, and a couple of seals from Doha to Russia. <laughs> yeah. <You're laughs> 
Yeah, just crazy stuff like that, you know. And you, you get a text message saying, hey, we've got a gig. Can, you know, get down to Doha for 8 o'clock tomorrow morning. So you sort of get out Google and Google, you know, flying into Russia. Um, and that's when you learn <laughs> they use different brake coefficients to ICAO and, you know, all this other stuff. It's metric. They use QFE, not QNH. Um, they use inches of mercury, not millibars, um, all this stuff. So we, we quickly banged out some, uh, you know, meters to feet conversion charts and things that night. And, and away we went the next day. And, you know, they're forecasting freezing fog and snow. And yeah, it was just, it was, it was just the next four years was like that. You, you know, um, you get a job sheet and you'd shoot up to, and you're just flying with young guys. There's two pilots, one engineer. You'd shoot up to Afghanistan. So you'd fly IFR to, say, Kandahar or somewhere and then cancel IFR and go and, Go and land in a strip in the desert or, you know, an airstrip up in the hills. Um, yeah, I mean, you talk for days about that, but, you know, people were jamming the radio frequency, so you'd, you still wouldn't talk to the tower until you got onto, you know, half a mile final, and then a helicopter would taxi out on the runway in front of you, so you'd sort of do a go-round, you're circling up in a in a valley, you know, in the 7.3. Um, it, it was just bush flying, really, um, <laughs> in, a, in a 7.3, which was epic, you know, so... Yeah, it was it was it was super challenging, super rewarding, and we were out there. You know, like I said, you get this job sheet, and you've got to go from A to B to C to D, and you know you can't pick up fuel at C. You can get fuel at D, but you got to be you know under a certain weight to get out of the the previous airfield. Then how you loaded the cargo, you know, you needed to box one was off here, and box two was a pickup there, and box three, and and so it was just a logistical challenge. You know, it was all up to you how you did it. You know, you you were out there gassing it up and. And showing them how to load it, and yeah, Jimmy, it was that, a... that sounds like the the ATPL exams. You're not the guy who writes these things, are you? <laughs> no, nah, it wasn't that hard. <laughs> it turns out it's not difficult at all, actually. But they, they <laughs> certainly certainly have a different spin on it. But um, no, it was just awesome, mate. It was just a team of guys doing a pretty wicked job. Some pretty challenging times, and then you got home and, and had a beer at night, and it was sort of it was a lot more difficult than the airline flying because it was all up to you, and, and you're dealing with you know, different cultures and agencies and getting overflight permits and landing permits. And we got turned around at the border a couple of times and you just, you're just dealing with stuff like that all day. But it was really, really challenging. And, and actually to fly the 737 VFR, you know, like we did charters out to Africa and, and flying around the hills and Afghan and Pakistan. And I mean, it's a pretty awesome machine to be, to be bombing around VFR and, you know, and it's super capable. Yeah, it was, it was a real eye-opener. Sounds like it. So, mate, you spent four years there or so. Well, I mean, what happened to the job at Air New Zealand? Was that on hold or did you just quit it? Yeah, uh, no, it was just on hold. Yeah, they did. It was during, it was 2009, I think it was the just after that the big um, sort of economic downturn. So they were keen to lose pilots. So we took a, they call it leave without pay here. Yeah. So that was, yeah, four years of leave without pay. Um, so at the end of that, uh, we're having a great time up there, a great lifestyle in Bahrain. We, we had a wakeboard boat parked in front of the house in the canal and, it was a it was a dreamy four years. Um, I didn't want to leave really, but the airline at home, you know, the golden chain said, um, you know, come back or, or don't. But you know, this is your chance. So yeah, I came back to New Zealand um, for the Airbus three twenty for about four years or something, and then onto the seven eight seven for uh, I think about eighteen months or something like that. And as well as on the seven eight seven. I don't even know what triggered it, but um, I just sort of this float plane sort of thing kept just in, in the back of my mind. You know, I, I spent my days on Instagram and on the internet, like Googling beavers and otters and, and all this stuff. So um, 
I started looking around trying to find someone to do a, a float plane rating while I was on the 787 because doing that long haul flying, you got plenty of time um, to ponder things. So um, I couldn't find um, anywhere really to do a type rating in New Zealand. There's a few 206 operators and a few Beaver operators, but the, you know, it was 1800 bucks an hour for a Beaver and I think it was twelve, thirteen hundred dollars $1,300 an hour for a 206 on floats. Um, got word from someone, there was a Piper Cup um, at the top of the South Island and it may be available for training. So I got a hold of the guy who was pretty abrupt and said it's not available for training unless you've got a hundred grand, uh, you could buy it, but other than that, I can't help you. And because he was a bit of a dick, I was like, yeah, no, that's, that's cool. I've got a hundred grand. Um, yeah, so, you know, where do we go from here? And the sort of phone went quiet. And, of course, I didn't have a hundred grand, but, you know, I just didn't like the tone of this guy. Eh? So, yeah, anyway, a friend went and checked out the plane and I bought it. So um, shot up there, did a quick, very, very brief um float plane rating or endorsement and um, then parked it back in, in, in the um, on the side of the water there for about six weeks until I could get back down. And yeah, so the problem was then um, I had nowhere to keep it where we live in Wanaka. There's a big lake, but no one's got waterfront property. And um, yeah, there's, there's no float plane set up whatsoever. There's no real docks you can pull onto. Um, Your parents' property is, is literally like two minutes drive from the lake though is it but it's it's obviously not an amphib yeah. so that was out of question yeah exactly so so then yeah about six weeks later i flew down to pick up this this plane jumped in this piper cub filled it up with fuel and um trying to remember my notes from the <laughs> on the flight plane rating six weeks prior um so um yeah i just opened up the taps and i had a six-hour ferry flight in front of me um to get it down to to where we live here in wanaka and um, yeah, that's when the, the learning began, really. Yeah. Um, so, what was the idea yeah, so behind was, buying it? Was just just a bit of a toy, a bit of fun, or? Yeah, I, I don't know. Um, I just needed a float plane rating for some reason. I, I, I'm not sure why. So that was the only way to get it. And then I thought, well, it'll just be fun, you know, for a couple of years. Um, and I guess subconsciously, it was getting me closer to getting a job in the float world. Because um, at the time, you know, to get a, to get a flow job anywhere, again, I don't really know why, but I was sort of looking towards Canada, and um, I talked to the guys on the Sundays as well, and everyone wanted, you know, a minimum of 100 hours on floats, which, you know, I, I couldn't quite work out any other way to do it, aside from, you know, buying your own flight plane. Huge money. Yeah, so so you called up the bank manager and bought a float plane. <laughs> um, yeah. Again, you know, and it's an underlying tone of this, this whole adventure is you've got to have the right missus, you know. A lot of a lot of women not that happy with with dad buying a float plane just on a whim. So, um, <laughs> yeah, so I went and picked up this thing. She was a flying float tank. Um, and we had, yeah, it's about a six-hour flight. And in the South Island of New Zealand, you know, you can get four seasons in one day. It's it's notoriously windy. You know, we're down in, the, in about the 40 40 to 50 south region, so it's always windy. Um, and the little cub, I didn't really know the, the extent of its performance or what sort of water it could take or how much wind it could take on the water or anything like that. But I picked what looked to be a pretty good day and, and launched off. And about half, well, two hours into it, I guess, um, I could see these lakes below me sort of starting to white cap. And um, all I knew was I had to make one stop for fuel. And I could see this, the wind coming down the smaller lake, and I thought, well, this is my chance. I can whip down there, land before that 
before that sort of that wind gets all the way down that lake, gas up and, and be on my way. Um, so I shot into this tiny wee lake, landed, which was a pretty big relief that, that it all worked out all right, and then um, parked it on the beach there, jumped up, filled up the um, the wings of jerry cans, and then um, I thought, you know, it'd be a bit like a boat, you know, when you when you launch the thing, you just push it off the beach, you know, so it's floating, climb in, start it up, and, and away you go. So I pushed it off the beach a wee bit, and by this time a bit of a crowd had gathered, and uh, pushed it off the beach, climbed in, and just by the time I got it started, it weather cocked into into sort of the two or three knot breeze, which was coming from the other way, and now it's just facing the beach with the <laughs> with the motor running, looking like a complete amateur. Um, so I only did that uh, one more time, and then the <laughs> third time, um, I, I thought maybe we'll just leave it healed on the beach a little bit and, and pull away like that, so... Yeah, launched off, um, still flat water, but by the time I got airborne, the, the Cub's only 108 horsepower, so the, and it didn't have flaps, so as you've seen, the, the performance isn't outstanding. Um, so used most of the lake, got airborne, and by the time I looked back, the the, 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 uh, the lake was white capping, so it was, you know, head, head for home. So another two or three hours down the, down the country, I finally got back to Lake Wanaka, and uh, it was completely glassed out like, probably like I've not seen since that day, actually, just absolute mill pond, mirror, glass. And then I thought, oh, sure, I definitely remember this guy talking about glass doing my tight rating. Um, <laughs> something like it was dangerous and, you know, stick close to the shore or something like that. So, yeah, anyway, I managed to managed to find a shoreline and, and landed no troubles at Wanaka. And then um, ended up keeping the thing in a campground, which is um, right on... Lake Wanaka, it's a pretty quiet part of the lake and um, it's quiet most of the year. So the camp manager was very accommodating and for 200 bucks a year, he let me keep my little float plane in his, in his campground. So you just had a little trailer there, you pulled it in and out of the water? Yeah, yeah, a little wee beaching trailer, which um, which I bought with the plane and yeah, it worked great. Um, yeah, it took probably 20 or 30 metres from where the plane was parked. You just roll it down the beach into the water and, and away you go and then I mean, you've seen it, the, the background that you have then at your disposal, you've got everything from, you know, beautiful um, lakes, alpine lakes, tarns, um, fjords. Um, it's just an endless playground, which over the next sort of two and a half years, I sort of started to explore just gingerly, you know, easing into the, the capabilities of this thing, what it could and couldn't do. And um, read a few more seaplane books, and so did my old man. And 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 we together we sort of worked out how to how to take off and land safely, and <laughs> and um, started going to a few more exciting places. Yeah, absolutely. And mate, I want to kind of share my story with you. Um, so we got in contact a while ago on Instagram, and I was coming to New Zealand for a wedding last year, and um, kind of hit you up and said, "Oh, look, you know." Coming over, we should catch up for a beer or something, and um, I'd love to come and check out your your cub and. You posted some other stuff about 185s, and I thought, oh, I wonder if he has that on floats. I didn't really know too much about what the story was. And, you know, we get into Wanaka one early morning, and you say, come out to this address here, and we'll go for a burn on the 185. And I was like, oh, sweet, you know. So we get to your joint about, uh, it was probably about seven, seven in the morning or something, and you're living with your old man at the moment because um, I think you're in between jobs or something, and we're about to start an adventure. And, um, you know, we have a quick coffee at your old man's place, and it's all a bit like, 
where are we kind of thing and you're just like we're ready to go we've got to get going i was like jesus this what's going on here i haven't hardly <laughs> met the guy you know we're about to jump Calm into 185 mate, with yeah. him yeah exactly and, you know and then over the next i think it was about five hours you'd taken my wife and and i on a just the three of us on this absolutely epic bush flying journey around the south island of new zealand i mean well we did about four landings i think and you know, into some into some valleys there, and and landing on some little beaches um, where there's absolutely no one around, and then heading off past Milford Sound to some little you know rock pebble buddy beaches down some streams and going swimming off yeah. glacier water. Man, it was it was absolutely epic, and like you know, to this day, Jen and I still think that was one of the most amazing flights we'd ever done. I mean, we were flying over snow capped mountains at you know eight thousand feet. For us, obviously in Australia, that's that's so different. Um, we absolutely had a ball. Yeah, it's it's pretty incredible. And like after um, you know being in Canada and, and Alaska, and I've done a bit of travelling with the the long haul and that. And New Zealand really is 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 pretty spectacular. And I think the big difference between here and other countries is we've got such a dramatic change in such a short distance. You know, like that day, you know, flying from here to the west coast, it's only fifty miles in a straight line. But you know, you, you go from sort of flattish um, barren land um, straight up into yeah, eight, nine, ten thousand, twelve thousand foot mountains, glaciers. Then you drop down the other side and you're into more or less rainforest beaches and in the Tasman Sea. So it's pretty epic to have in your backyard. And and that's, again, you know, years of flying around it, I guess looking at lakes and everything else, that, that's where the, I guess in the back of my mind, the float plane just, just screamed access, you know, like as you've seen, the 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 um the options are just limitless yeah i mean on that day you know i I must admit jen was kind of a bit sketchy she was like i don't know about this this seems a bit dodgy you know like but um (laughs) after seeing you kind of tear around and and just be fully in control of what's going on in this machine she was uh, very happy but i must say you know like being a float plane boy i was really keen just to try out this cub so you and i went for a burn the next day in the little cub to try and you, you wanted to take me out to this little spot, eh? In the yeah, well, I was deep down. I was just angling for some free float plane lessons because um, <laughs> at this stage of uh, you know a grand total of probably 150 hours floats or something. I think I had one lesson and uh, and read a few books. Yeah, <laughs> but it was so cool, man. We went. What we took it up to a, a lake um, about 4,000 feet in altitude, and um, you know we, where you wanted to take me originally was all fogged out. We couldn't get there. That's right. Yeah. That's and right. then we landed in this little lake up in the hills there, and then we couldn't, ne- we nearly couldn't get it out of there. Yeah, well, I, I just figured you'd know how to. Yeah, yeah. it was a lake <laughs> I'd never, never been into, and I just thought, well, I always wanted to, and this guy knows how to fly floats, so maybe he better get us out. <laughs> um, yeah, so yeah, let I me mean, yeah, four thousand feet up. I mean, that cub was probably only producing about sixty horsepower. So two I, I got blokes on course. board. Yeah. Yeah, well, I got in there quite a few times, and it's always, you know, a little bit not tight getting out, but just the performance of the machine to get it up on the step, um, you know, was limiting. Um, so to kind of mitigate that, what I always do, and I think we even day we had it, um, I always just put jerry cans in the boot. So you know, if you really needed to ditch weight, you could you could lose the jerry cans and then just fill up as as needed when you got to bigger lakes. So. Um, I think we hadn't quite got to that stage, but I think, <laughs> I think it was getting pretty close to yeah, ditching we the, uh, the jerry cans in the boot that day. Yeah, but a few yeah, a few um, circular takeoffs and uh, maybe yeah. a few tiny little gusts that weren't you know, weren't expected, and we finally got it on the step eventually. And man, that takeoff though is like you know you take off over this waterfall 
and basically opens up into the Queenstown kind of sound, isn't it really? Like down to Queenstown there and that was insane, you know. All of a sudden, you know, you're at 4,000 feet altitude rather than zero, aren't you? Because you just got airborne off this off this little yeah. lake and, yeah, what a beautiful flight yeah. that was. Yeah, it's, it's quite impressive. And, and like I say, I mean, that's that's only one of, you know, I don't know how many thousand lakes in the area and, and that's why I'm sort of already, um, I've since, since sold that car, but... Um, I've still got the floats, so uh, you know. Since that day, I sold it. I'm still. I'm looking now for a, perhaps a more more powerful machine that we can go and and go and do some more exploring. Absolutely. Now, mate, all this float flying that you've been doing, practicing, yeah. it was leading to a, an eventual goal and and where you are kind of now. Yeah, yeah. So um, somehow the the dream became um, to get up to Canada and fly beavers. So uh, everyone I talked to and everywhere I looked, you know, you couldn't get um, you couldn't get into a job with you know less than I mean you couldn't get onto a beaver with less than five hundred hours floats. Um, you might be able to squeak onto a Cessna with a hundred hours of floats or something. So I was getting near that sort of hundred hours of floats, and my my master plan was to take um, three years off the airline job again and go and fly floats. So. I wanted to get up to Canada and hit the ground running. I didn't want to, you know, go up, go to the back blocks too much because, um, again, I was bringing the, the missus and, uh, you know, very crucial, you've got to keep the missus happy, otherwise you can't, you know, continue to do these types of adventures. So my plan was to go somewhere that we are both happy to live and we could fly floats. So I was getting as many hours as I could on my cup at home on my days off so that when we went to Canada, we could get a, a decent job off the bat and, and really make a good go of it over, over the three years. So I Googled um, Canadian beaver, which actually, if you've got some spare time, it's reasonably interesting. Um, and, and I just hit images and um, I scrolled down and th- there was this photo of this beaver parked in front of this beautiful, you know, log cabin, quintessential, you know, Canadian setup in the mountains. So I Googled that company and, and clicked them an email and said, hey, you know, I really like your beaver. Um, what's, the, what's the deal? And he came back and said, actually, we could, we could use you right now. We're flat out. I've, I've uh, lost my pilot for the season and, you know, I'm, I'm totally slammed at the moment, but let's, let's talk. Um, so this was, this was about uh, eight or nine months before we could actually get up to Canada. But um, this the sort of step one was, was to have a bit of a goal. So chatted to the guy and he, he sort of said, look, hey, if you're in Canada, swing by, but, you know, no promises. And I emailed a, a few other people, but, you know, didn't get many responses as, you know, no one really wants to hire an airline guy to fly their, you know, float planes as they're not renowned as, as being, you know, flexible or thinking on their feet or um, doing anything that the, the procedure doesn't uh, prescribe. So um, I, I went up to Canada and drove it's about seven hours north of Vancouver and went and, went and saw this guy. And um, I think he's pretty surprised that we turned up. But, um, yeah, had a great couple of days there. And, and at the end of it, he sort of said, look, all of our flying is, is mountain flying. Um, they fly up to lakes up at 6,500 feet. Um, their home base is 3,500 feet. And the guys in the past sort of weren't that comfortable in the hills um, with the wind and, and sort of, you know, pretty trying conditions. Um, so even though I didn't have much float time, um, he was a kite surfer and I'm a kite surfer, so we sort of spoke a wee bit about, you know, plenty of time on the water, not not necessarily in a plane, but, you know, just reading reading the wind and the water and, and you know, all those things that go with flying floats. And combined with a bit of mountain flying experience that I had, he, he offered me the job. So we were all set um, to go up there for the for the next season. I think it was 2000 and 19 yeah 
So um, came home, uh, managed to get the time off work. Um, what else? Oh, I had to go to Canada do a Canadian license, which is which is um, yeah, sort of. I actually do was two trips to Canada to finish that off, and I had to take a demotion at work. Actually, I was due for a promotion, but I had to decline it, um, so I could still get the the time off to do this this float float plane trip. So it was um, a lot of things had to line up for it to happen, um, and you know a lot of people you know say oh you're so lucky and this and that, but as you know you know you sort of make your own luck a wee bit, and if you if you've got a goal and you know you just lay out the steps and and get going, so. Absolutely, I would hardly call it luck when you went out and put a hundred thousand dollar carbon floats on your home loan. Yeah, yeah, I mean six thousand dollars. Yeah, to insure it. Yeah, so um, yeah, it's it's definitely a bit of a mission, and and again, I can't emphasize uh, enough. Choose choose the right misses um, if you want to. It's been the it's been the underlying theme, mate, in this in this whole interview. Well, it is. Yeah, it certainly makes life easier here. You don't want a handbrake. So. that was pretty much the lead up to to Canada. So before I left, um, so now I've got this float plane stuck at a at a campground in Lake Wanaka, and it's like, well, what do you what do you do with that? I can't leave it parked in this guy's campground while I'm on the other side of the world. So um, I got on YouTube, and I saw these guys landing their float planes on the grass. Um, so I searched every YouTube clip I could, and um, so you know, I was reasonably well qualified after this, and. Um, <laughs> had my dad he, you know he had a solid you know 50 hours on flights as well so he was standing in the paddock on the handheld and um i come and landed our cub on the, on the grass here at home in, in the paddock um yeah and we we just tied it down in the paddock and stored it here for the new zealand winter while we we went up to canada so you just leave it wherever it, it finished wherever it's come to a skid <laughs> no, or no, no we just we picked it up with a little beaching trailer and, and oh, yeah. put it oh that's it. right yeah quiet area of the of the farm so it wouldn't get blown away yep yeah yeah oh, so that work. was that was yeah that was the end of phase one and and um yeah off to canada to um start this job flying um flying a beaver in the hills <laughs> yeah. so tell us tell us a little bit about that um whereabouts were you and, and what what was the kind of flying you were doing yeah so there's a company um it's called tyx adventures uh, seven hours north um of vancouver if you drive Pretty, pretty remote area like there's nothing there there's this this big lodge uh big log cabin lodge on the side of a lake so not associated with any back- town or anything it's just a no no there's not there's a i mean they call it a town it's Goldbridge. um there's a there's a corner store sort of 20 minutes from the lodge um but that's that's about it but the lodge itself's got a restaurant and, and a pub and things um so there's beautiful setting and they fly mountain bikers up into these alpine lakes and then they launch off on a sort of multi-day backcountry mountain bike experience, staying in these sort of log cabin-y um, huts scattered throughout the, the Ch- South Chilcolton um, Provincial Park. So it's a, it's a pretty epic, uh, you know, experience yeah. for the riders and, and hikers. And then we fly some hunters towards the end of the season. And, yeah, so you, most of the day you'd spend flying just, you know, 10, 10 to 20-minute sectors up into these lakes, dropping guys off. Um You'd fly supplies for the camps. So, um, yeah, it involved lots of times, you know, little five-minute sectors hopping between different lakes to drop off gear, lots of loading and unloading by yourself. And, um, yeah, it was, it was pretty, like, you know, quite labour-intensive because it's, like most GA, it's more or less a one-man band. You know, you, you launch up, drop these guys off, come roaring back down to the, the home lake um, on the dock. You, you know, we refueled for every trip. Um, 
in the Beaver, we're loading in five up to five people and five bikes, all in the cabin. Wow. Um, Where do the bikes so you go? You load all those up. Just put them in the back. It's got the um the, the cabin extension, so you could get you take the front and the rear wheels off, and you'd sort of oh, lay them right. side okay, by yep. side on an, on the an angle in the back. Yeah. So um yeah, it was but it was a good load. You know, most most trips, and like I say, you're taking off from three and a half thousand feet. So. Um, all that practice in, in my cub, you know, with that low horsepower, um, <laughs> sort of came into play a wee bit because yeah, most takeoffs, you know, like all GA operations, you're at, you're at max weight and you know we were, it was pretty high altitude. So yeah, it was sort of quite. If you didn't have the technique right, it, it didn't go so good. So you sort of got got reasonably um, quickly acquainted with the with the beaver and, and how to get the the best out of it to get it off these lakes. And um, yeah, that was the the first season, but. You know, after flying around Lake Wanaka and the Alpine Lakes, I sort of thought I had a bit of a grasp on, on float flying. And um, I passed all my, my checks and yeah. then got up there and, and um, had to dock, you know, more or less for the first time. Like, I just I just put off on beaches around here. And so, um, again, I'd seen it on YouTube. It didn't look too difficult. So um, <laughs> the, the first one went okay, strangely enough. Um, but then it just went downhill from there, you know, like docking with – you know, 10, 15 knot tailwinds at these these alpine lakes where the, the dock consisted of two wooden planks and, and if you missed the dock, you were into rocks and trees and it was real trial by fire. And about halfway through the season, the, the boss gave me a few few good pointers, which would have been pretty handy at the start of the season. But, yeah, it all just slowly, slowly came together. And, um, yeah, I mean, we used to fly down to Vancouver a lot as well, down to downtown to the river. Um, out at YVR to pick up people and then fly them directly up to the mountains. So you'd you'd pull up down there and you you know you're docking between a a caravan and an otter and you know things like this. So oh dear. yeah, the dock got got honed reasonably quickly. Didn't have too much drama apart from um, we put a hole in the float one day. There's there's a submerged waratah that I managed to miss for most of the season and then just on this fateful day just must have scraped this this waratah that. He's just under the surface there by the dock and um, put a hole in the, the front of the float, which I didn't know. I didn't, I didn't even didn't feel it, didn't see it, didn't hear it. So um, that sort of led to my first, I guess, experience in float planes where things don't go perfectly. And flew back to base. The machine sat there for a couple of hours. I guess the float locker filled up. And as it turns out, the next flight was actually a sort of a round-robin trip, but ending up down in Vancouver um, for a 100-hour check. So... Launched out of the home lake with a pretty good load on and full fuel, but it was a really, real gusty day. You know, it was probably gusting sort of 30 knots or, you know, from 20 to 30 knots and, you know, um, bullets all over the lake and, um, you know, pretty, pretty rolly conditions. So as we launched off down the lake, it actually involved a, the lake was sort of shaped like an L. So you sort of had to go around the corner um, during your takeoff. So you, you're always sort of concentrating pretty hard. And, and, and on this particular day, I remember thinking, oh, the machine's not going that well, but you know, it's pretty gusty and, and the conditions aren't ideal, so that's fine. And we got away, went up, landed at 5,000 feet, and as I was taxing in, I remember thinking, man, it's, it's sitting pretty low in the water, this thing. But again, I was like, oh, you know, we're, we're pretty heavy and, you know, it is high altitude and, oh, well, you know, we'll keep going. And so I dropped off um, pretty much all the gear and, and there was just my wife and myself and one other guy left in the machine. We had one more drop-off to make. And so we launched out of this lake, and that's when it finally twigged that, you know, we're pretty light now, and we use a lot of lake. And I was pretty close to pulling the pin, actually, but we sort of got to a, a decision point where the machine was feeling pretty light, and, and so away we went. 
And then this particular beaver's got the nose extension, so it's really, really nose-heavy anyway. And I got on finals to this last stop before we went down to maintenance, and um, really early in the approach, before I even got any flap out, I had it trimmed hard back, and um, and that was I was out of trim, and I was that's when the penny dropped that, yeah, the the front uh, float locker was full of water. So luckily it was it was a pretty choppy choppy windy day at this lake, so the the landing was reasonably uneventful. So then we we pumped out the water out of this front float and. Man, I don't know if you've pumped a full locker before, but you know you, you're switching between arms, and it probably took like a solid five, maybe ten minutes to, to pump this float out. So it must have been a hundred kilos of water in that front locker, um, and then from there just pumped it out, flew down to Vancouver, and, and got the float um, repaired during its hundred hour. But yeah, it was a interesting, interesting little exercise and, and a bit of an eye opener that you know something as innocuous as a wee scrape on the float that you don't know about could could really ruin your day, you know, in, in a critical um, situation. Absolutely, man. You're, you're asking the wrong guy, though. Have, has he ever pumped out, you know, a lot of water from floats? I mean, down in Geelong, you know, those floats sometimes got so bad that you'd basically be pumping the main step compartment every hour uh, <laughs> just to keep the thing from having too much water in it so that, you know, when you get a flight eventually you'd basically put the passengers in the plane, just be like, yeah, just give us five seconds, guys. I've just got to uh, pump the floats, you know, just so we can get airborne, basically. So <laughs> that's G- GA yeah. float plane living, though, isn't it? It's, yeah, it's good, mate. Yeah, it uh, keeps you fit. Absolutely. And loading, loading cargo, yeah. So, mate, that was step one of this uh, three-year break, um, late, well, last year in the Canadian uh, summer. Um, yep. What were you planning for the winter? Um, so I didn't really have any plans, um, but I, I did a charter one day up to this uh, this place called Kamloops. I just um, docked up there, and um, the passengers were in town for for a few hours. So I was just waiting out by the plane, and some um, Canadian guy came down and started chatting to me, and he said exactly that, you know, what are you doing here, and what are your plans? And I said, oh, you know, I'm pretty open, but uh, you know, here the Maldives are cool. Um, you know, they got a few flight planes out there, and and he said, oh well. If you want to go to the Maldives, call this guy. Uh, he's a good buddy of mine, and and uh, you know if you're flying a beaver out here, you'll you'll love flying twin otters in the Maldives. So I thought, cool, okay. So went home and um, gingerly broached the wife that uh, we might be moving to the Maldives, and um, <laughs> flicked this guy email, and uh, he emailed back and said, yeah, great. Now when can you get here? So it was just another one of those right place, right time, and. And I think when you've been in the industry a while as well, you know, you meet people around the place and you're pretty quickly determined if, you know, if they're, if they're genuine, if they're, if they're really passionate about it or, or whether they're just on a, you know, the quickest quickest route to the airlines or, you know, what they're all about. But I met another guy and he was passionate like I was and we kind of hit it off and so that kind of led to the, the move to the Maldives. So we came home from Canada, unpacked all the cold gear, packed the, um, you know, the boardies, and the kite surfing gear, and shut up to the Maldives, which was November uh, last year. Big change, I guess, from Canada. Yeah, yeah, it is. So, um, yeah, it's pretty interesting. It's you know, everyone's seen the postcards of the Maldives, and and it all looks nice on Instagram. So, thought, why not? So, we rocked in. Um, long story short, you know, it's it is still a more or less a third world country. So, the first three months were spent. Um, you know, twid- twiddling your thumbs, um, doing medicals, um, doing ground courses. In fact, every course known to man, you know, dangerous goods, uh, CRM security, 
uh, human factors, the, the full list of, of stuff there. And then um, we did, we finally got around to flying the machine, which is fantastic. We did a, the tight rating was eight hours um, of flying, and there's three of us doing it at the same time. So we all sort of jumped in the back of the Twin Otter and, and went out and did the tight rating. So we all got pretty excited that it was finally happening after three months of admin. And then uh, after our tight rating, we, we stood down again for another, I think it was four or five weeks while the license was then processed. Um, and Damn. then that allowed us to, finally get into um uh line training but um during that time we spent a lot of time down at the float dock and it was really cool actually to be involved finally in a in a float operation that was i mean they're pretty professional and obviously they've been flying quarters there since i think the early 90s so i mean what they don't know about float flying up there is you know not worth knowing these guys uh, the, you know some people refer it as a, a flight plane a float plane finishing school you know um and so it was actually really cool. There was a lot of little bits, you know, that were sort of gaps in my knowledge that were filled in, like the the cabbies that they carry as flight attendants in the back of the Twin Otters. They showed us how to tie these ropes off and, you know, in lightning quick times. And um, they showed you how to pump a float pretty quick. Eh? You know, the bare feet method with your, the, the float pump between your big toe and the next toe. And then you can you've still got one hand free to, you know, get on Tinder or whatever these, <laughs> these, cab, these cabbies were doing all day. Um so yeah, it was really cool to just get that, I guess, um, that baseline float knowledge just up to scratch. And then it was, yeah, it was into line training, which was a pretty eye-opening, to be honest. I thought the Maldives was going to be, you know, flat water lagoons and fancy resorts and bikinis. And man, it was the first time I actually went out in the thing to a, to a resort. I honestly thought we were going to ruin the machine on the first landing, like, Looking at where we were going to land, it was rough as guts. You know, it was white capping. It was probably blowing 20, 25 knots. And you huge water. I mean, it's it's open. It's within the natal, but it is more or less open ocean. And I thought, God, this, you know, I've come up here to buy these twin otters and we're going to wreck this thing on my first landing. But, I mean, that, that machine is just unbelievable. You know, it, they come in, just hover just above the waves, plenty of power on. And when they see a little patch of water that looks flat enough, they just chop the power a bit of beta and and reverse and you you know you just touch the top of a wave and then you settle down and you stopped and i was just completely blown away you know and then that was the start of the next few months of line training we did everything from you know landing cross swell and you know pretty big swells coming around these islands um learning how to pick the best line you know to sort of get as much wind on the nose as you could while still paralleling the swell um, while still having a good go around area, um, and so that was that was you know a big learning curve and continues to be. And then you know after they've pulled off these these landings in this open ocean, you know then they're taxing these things through channels in the reef. You, you know one day we were more or less surfing these waves through this through this channel with a 25 knot quartering tailwind, and, and the captain's just you know he's on the on the power levers, you know plenty of grunt on one side, you know, full reverse on the other and and they just do it with ease, you know, and sail this thing through the channel and then then um, dock the thing up, um, side onto these rollers, you know, dock the plane up and generally when it's that rough they leave one engine running just so they can sort of keep some sort of control over the thing while you you load, unload and, and away you go again. So it was a real eye opener as, as to what what these machines could do and, and the skill of the guys that are doing it, you know, um, I've done plenty of multi-engine, you know, turbine time and all that. And so I thought, 
you know, with a with a few hundred hours float time and a, a bit of experience in twin turbines, I'll be in that left seat pretty quick. But yeah, it's, it's probably one of the first times in my life I've gone, mate, I don't want to be in the left seat, you know, um, 12 months and in that right, just just learning the tricks of the trade in this new environment is um, is well worth it. Yeah, it's funny, like you're saying, I mean, everyone aspires to be in the left seat and, you know, even on the Mallard here, um, one of our pilots who had a lot of flight experience, he had probably four or five thousand hours of float time. Uh, Drew, actually, he was the, the second guy interviewed on this podcast and he got his Mallard command rating pretty quickly. I think it was after about 12 months of being checked to line as an FO and even he at the time was just like, I would have really loved another 12 months of flying in the right seat, you know. Um, yeah. These machines, they, you know, we they take some beatings in these rough waters and, you know, it takes a lot of experience to learn these kind of areas. Oh, for sure, yeah. And I mean, just off the bat, you know, um, I remember the, the first time I got my hands on the thing, I was just along for a mill, but we had to taxi a, a wee way with no passengers, so the, the guy let me hop in and and, um, and just taxi the thing. And, and, you know, straight away it doesn't have water rudders, which, okay, I thought, oh, well, that's fine. Again, I've got plenty of plenty of twin engine time. This will be no worries. And um, even just driving the thing straight was <laughs> was a mission, you know. So yeah, you really are, and and again, like on this this wee adventure I've been on and, and other adventures, it's it's really hit home that it doesn't really matter how much time you've got doing whatever you're doing previously. You know, you I guess you've always got that the decision making and, and a good base layer of experience. But anywhere you go, you know, you you really got to just start start from scratch in a, in a lot of regard. You know, and um, whilst that's it's really awesome, you know, it's challenging and it's definitely good for your ego because you just you know. You're just taking a bit of a beating on, on um, everything you've ever known. Um, but then again, you get that as things start coming together and you start learning more. And I mean, it's like being a kid again. You're like, wow, this is you know, this is great. And you sort of got a renewed passion for for doing it. And as you get better and better, it gets more rewarding. And and then of course, I guess then you're looking at you know the next step was you can um, upgrade to captain up there and. I mean, a lot of guys now are making it a, a career choice because, I mean, I know this year they were so short on float plane pilots out there that, I mean, they were paying huge sums of money for these guys to to come and um, be captains on these Twinotas for three months, you know, because there's not many people in the world that have got float plane experience uh, and ATPL um, and are willing to go and live in the Maldives for, you know, whatever period of time. So, it really is a niche sort of lucrative or becoming a, a lucrative market um, at least until two or three months ago. Yeah, like you said, it's just growing so quickly. I mean, you see Transmeldivian just goes, has aeroplane after aeroplane arriving, you know, and now there's what, how many, three three uh, Twin Otter companies now in the Maldives? Yeah, mate, it's incredible. There's TMA, the big one, the red and white machines you'll see on Instagram. Um, I think they have around 55 machines or something. There's the government-owned airline, which has um, a couple of airliners, as well as um, I think 10 or 12 Twin Otters. That's the company I was working for. And then um, there's a new company, which has got a couple of ATRs and also, um, you know, four or five um, Twin Otters, and they've got something like 15 or 20 coming. Um, it's ridiculous. Yeah, called, called Manta. So, I mean, there's plenty of... You know, you know, pilot seats to be filled out there, and yeah, it really is. Like I say, I, I think it probably is the the pinnacle of float plane flying as far as your skills. You know, you you're flying around in in um you know a twin engine, twin turbine float plane, 
um, operating in the open ocean and flat lagoons, um, the the handling of the machine docking and you know, if you've never seen a twin otter dock, it's quite impressive. Just that in itself, they they put the they come in and they put the left um, heel of the float on the dock and hold it there. Um, so the so the left engine's not over the dock, creating a hazard to you know anyone walking around the dock. And and so the cabbie or the flight attendant, he hops out the back back door of the twin otter, um, secures the left um, heel of the float, and then the captain shuts the engines down and then slowly brings brings the front of the aircraft uh, onto the dock and then once that's secured they they shut it down and it's a reverse procedure for going out so you know when you've got an off dock wind and and a big swell coming through I mean just to do that is you know take it take a wee while to get the, the hang of I'd imagine absolutely and like you just think about things like you know as land plane pilots we're sitting on a, a ramp with the brakes on uh, that's completely stable and and starting engines up and with no stress you know it's it's almost like starting the engines in an earthquake isn't it really like the plane's getting shaken around so much and even just that fact you know your head's bobbing around you're getting slammed by some some rollers there and and you're trying to do an engine start you know it's it's crazy stuff oh it is it's and it's super dynamic and and i think and and i think that's what sort of keeps drawing me to these these types of adventures is is that that type of flying is it takes in my opinion it takes a lot more discipline and and um definitely a bit more skill than sort of airline flying because whilst the the procedures are prescribed these days in these twin engine float planes and things you're just thinking on your feet and and you're managing so many factors at once and and again i think it really is the pinnacle of, of probably two crew flying as well because managing all those things like you say, while you're bobbing up and down, and a storm is um, is pretty full on, and and the guys that do it well, you know, they they do it very well, and and I think if you if you're not very good at it, then it's really going to show up pretty quick, you know. Yeah, absolutely. Now, mate, you spoke about COVID before. Did that affect uh, your time over there? And what's the plan for the future? Obviously, you're on a three year kind of break from uh, from the Air New Zealand job. Like, what's the plans from here? Yeah. So um, yeah, when COVID hit, it was it was more or less overnight. You know, um, it just stopped. We, we were busy there, basically bringing people back from the resorts. There was a few people. We flew a few guys actually. One of the last flights I did before I left was uh, a guy flew in on his private jet with his son, and he chartered the twin otter by himself, and we flew him out to some resort, and he was hunkering down there for the for the um, for the coronavirus. I don't know. Yeah, he was at least there for a month, and that was pretty common. Um, wow. but yeah, yeah. So now, um, the place is in lockdown, so there's no, no one coming in, no one coming out. So it's, you know, more or less there's, um, there's nothing happening. The government airline Maldivian, um, which I was working for, they're still, they're actually reasonably busy, but, um, just managing this COVID thing, flying supplies to the, um, quarantine resorts more or less. So they're, they're still going in and out, but, um, other than that, um, it's all stopped. I believe they're looking to open up the Maldives again in July. So 30% of the market there is is Chinese, um, and I think China's doing reasonably well. So that could start things ticking over again. But then the rest of the the uh, makeup of tourists is mostly European. So yeah, when when that'll all come back, you know, is anyone's guess and. The, the, there's um, I don't know what the makeup of expat versus local would be, but you know there's I would say the expats probably only make up 
maybe 30% of, of the pilots up there now, 30%, 40%. So there's plenty of local guys to keep things running up there. And I think, you know, realistically, they're not going to need expats, I would say, this coming season, maybe maybe in 6, 12, 18 months' time, you know, there'll be, there'll be work back there for the expats. And what about yourself? Are you planning to get back there as soon as possible once they open that up for expats or yeah, we'd another like to job? Go back. Yeah, we'd like to go back. But um, tomorrow, actually, we're heading back to Canada. Lucky enough, the, the outfit I was working for last year, even after putting a hole in his floats, is um, he's happy, <laughs> to ha- happy to have us back. So, yeah, we're heading up there tomorrow and yeah, we'll be back to flying um, the mountain bikers up into the hills, which it could go all right this season because the majority of the air business is, is actually Canadians. And, and while the US borders close, you know, um, there's nowhere for those guys to go. So it actually might not be a too bad a season up in Canada. Um, I know a lot of the fishing, uh, flying fishing type outfits are, are struggling because a lot of their business is from the US. So, yeah, there's a lot of guys out of work um, in, in Canada, which, you know, I guess is one of the bigger float plane flying places um, around the world so yeah hoping hoping things sort of improve for next next season really a lot of guys have sort of written this one off man that's that's pretty epic to be able to land a job you know i mean i know you worked there last year but you weren't lining it up again for this season so it's pretty epic to be able to score a job must be pretty handy like obviously they know you a bit bit of the case of devil you know i guess um and to be able to line up that job again it is, mate. Yeah, we're pretty lucky. I mean, a lot of the Canadians, I mean, the expat community in the Maldives is mostly Canadians and talking to those guys, you know, so many of them have just done their jobs back there this year. But um, that would actually make an interesting podcast. I think podcast for the, the future, a lot of those guys that do the, the Maldives flying and then backed up with flying the, is it the 412s? 415s, yeah. 415s, yeah, and... and um, in Canada, so all those guys have got work to go back to because, you know, the fire season doesn't stop for, for any virus. Um, so they're all right, but, yeah, everyone else is uh, is pretty quiet, I think. Yeah, it sounds like you've kind of got it all worked out with uh, taking those three years off and, you know, adventure-seeking pilots. So, mate, really cool to dive into your story there. And uh, I'd like to know, like, you know, those airline pilots that you fly with at Air New Zealand, like, what do they think of your adventure? Because it's so random to hear a story about you know a pilot who kind of goes through the ranks like everyone else does gets that dream airline job or what they think is the dream airline job and then kind of takes time off to go back to GA like you know what are their thoughts yeah a mixed mixed reaction <laughs> you had everything from uh, what's a beaver to <laughs> um, to you know um, I wish my wife would let me do that to um, that sounds amazing mate you know have a great time good on you to what are you doing that for you? You're going to take a massive pay cut. You know, that's crazy. So, yeah, real real mixed mix responses, which I guess is, you know, a, a, a cross-section of, the, you know, the different types of guys in aviation and what, what they're into. I mean, it was interesting in the airline. You know, very few guys actually fly for fun outside the airline, you know. Like a lot of guys, it's it's become a, just a job, you know. It's, it's not a passion and um, – I mean, not to, to speak too negatively of the airlines. I mean, they, they're great, you know, uh, as a great career choice. It's a fantastic job. But, you know, over the last 10, 15 years, you know, they've been sort of slowly just edging out any sort of, um, you know, passion out of the flying side of it. You know, it's 
as everyone knows, is very regulated, uh, very procedural. I mean, there's literally a procedure for um, going to the bathroom, you know, whereas when I was in Canada, I'd just jump in the lake off the float, you know, shut the beaver down, hop in the lake, do what you need to do, climb back in and, and get going again, you know. Um, so, yeah, they, they have taken a lot of the, I guess, the passion out of the job. But in saying that, you know, you do a trip with four good blokes, uh, fly to the other side of the world and have a couple of beers in Shanghai or, you know, gyozas in Japan. And, and then jump back in, you know, a 250-ton machine and, and fly back, you know, across however many countries during the night um, back home. I mean, I, I do enjoy it, um, but, you know, like everything, not not like wives, but everything else, variety is, is key, you know. So, yeah, if you, if you get the chance to do, I mean, I don't think there's a, I've enjoyed every aspect of, of aviation that I've been in, really. Um, just, um they feel different, you know. They feel different passions, and depending on where you are in life, what you what you want to do, and what what um, sort of itch you want to scratch at the time. I guess, yeah. That's. I think that you just kind of summed it up there with variety, isn't it? Like, I think any pilot kind of gets a little bit of uh, cabin fever, I guess you could say, with uh, any job that they do, whether it be flying the Mallard or flying a Twin Otter or flying a seven eight seven International. You know, doing the same thing over and over again is eventually going to kind of tire you out so yeah keeping it all a bit of variety and i guess that's what's great about flying privately you know like even back in wanaka there having your own little cub on floats or being able to take the 185 you know that's always going to add a bit of variety to uh your flying and and life and kind of keep you interested yeah it is and and i remember way way back um my dad saying to me you know i was flying these 185s around the bush and he he sort of said well you know you, you can keep doing that for the rest of your life um you know that's going to satisfy that part of it or you know you can go to the airlines and potentially buy your own machine and you know go flying when you want um with who you want where you want um it's just you're going to be broke for the rest of your life um, if you own an airplane but you know that's 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 all part and parcel of life really but um yeah i'd I'd recommend any avenue to anyone and um i mean it's a massive cliche but it's 100 percent true you know just choose what you want to do any sort of goal you got and lay out the steps and just make it happen. You know, no one's going to make it happen for you. And um, man, that's the, the op- options are endless, you know, and up until this COVID thing is a really eye opener getting back into GA, just how many options there are, you know, there's these niche little contracts. Um, I saw one recently flying a, um, an air tractor 802 um, crop dusting plane, but flying it full of fuel, um, around Indonesia to, to support um, communities up there dropping off fuel, you know, and paying very well. Um, all sorts of strange little things are starting to pop up as that pilot shortage, you know, kicked in. And, and especially the, the float flying world, you know, in the future, it's going to get harder and harder to find these, these float plane guys to fly places like the Maldives and that. So I don't think you can really lose. Absolutely, yeah. Um, we didn't even really touch on the kiteboarding stuff you do in the 185 um, back home there. Um, that's some pretty epic flying, you know, taking out the machine and, and going kiteboarding in some of these beautiful places in New Zealand. But um, if for those out there who want to check some of that out, you can uh, check out Shane on Instagram, shameless plug, mate. Uh, what's your Instagram handle at the moment? No, it's just Shane McCauley, I think it is. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, again, aviation's led to some cool things. We've been flying these uh, big kiteboarding brand and some of their pros just around really remote regions of, of New Zealand, landing on riverbeds and things and, and making some pretty nice content for them. And, and we actually did it up in Canada last season. They came up again and we flew around in the Beaver to some remote lakes and did some kiteboarding. 
So um, yeah, if you, if you can combine a couple of your passions into into your job, it's it's pretty rewarding. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so check out Shane at Shane McCauley. I'll also put a link in my Instagram for for this podcast, and you can check out some of his stuff. It's epic little uh, little page there, mate, of uh, float plane and bush flying, and a bit of twin otters thrown there in as well. Uh, pretty epic, but mate. Um, we're coming to the pointy end of this podcast, and I'd like to finish the uh, the podcast with our splash and dash questionnaire, just like the land plane touch and go, the seaplane splash and dash. We'll just touch on a few seaplane related questions. Um, Mate, obviously, you don't have a lot of time to fill in with your three years off to to get some float flying in. So, what what do you think would be the dream seaplane job that you would, tr- if you could, and pick anything in the world to try and fill in those three years? What would it be? I'd like to fly pretty much the job I've got in Canada, but doing it in a single turbine otter. Epic, yeah, right. There's a few single otters over there, isn't there? That you there can are, jump yeah. On? yeah, yeah. Pretty difficult to get into, but um, yeah, that's that's the dream. Would that also be your dream seaplane to fly? If you could pick anything in the world to fly, what would it be? Yeah, um, it would be that that single turbine otter on floats. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely epic. Um, what about some uh, some inspiring advice for some seaplane pilots out there? I mean, we probably spoke a little bit about that already in this, but you know, um, what would you say to anyone who wants to get into the float plane industry? Yeah, I'd, I'd sort of similar sentiments to, to what I've heard you say is. No one's going to hire you, you know, from sending a CV. You've got to get out there and meet the guys and show them who you really are. And 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 if you're passionate, that's not hard. You know, you like I say, I googled Canadian beaver. I I chose the picture that I like the look of and and just chased that up. And and if you go and if you go and see the operator, um, you present yourself, you hang around, you help out, you're going to get a job there eventually. There's there's no two ways about it. So, yeah, just just pick your path and and stick with it. You know, it's it's not easy, but you can 100% um, achieve whatever you want to achieve if, if you just commit to it. Absolutely. And, mate, final question. Uh, what's been the most epic location to land a seaplane in? Is it somewhere in New Zealand, Canada, or, or have you found the Maldives as being the most epic landing location? Um, yeah, for me, prob- probably, mate, that that, um, that lake we went to that day, that one or you know something nearby, so probably probably Alpine, New Zealand, I'd have to say. Probably the company you had with you, mate, at the time. At yeah, well, time. I think that was, that's a large part of me. I'd probably still be stuck <laughs> there if I didn't have you with me. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that did help, yeah. I didn't do much, mate. I was just sitting in the back there filming the whole yeah. thing, having a, having a good old time. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I loved how after that flight you were just like – said you were thinking to yourself like this guy probably thinks i've got you know done it i've got no idea what i'm doing and i'm just sitting in the back there just going like this is so awesome we're up in some <laughs> lake here we we can't get this thing airborne this is cool yeah how great is this yeah 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 i was just <laughs> ready to your sweating bullets up the front yeah 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 oh good times mate good times it's all good fun and, that, and that's Absolutely. the other thing is if you can share your passion with other people you know that that is the gold and that that's the icing on the cake if you can you can go and do this stuff with the people you want to do it with it's it's just all the better absolutely mate and uh, i guess thanks very much for sharing your story today it's been awesome kind of chatting to you and and talking a little bit about your career so far definitely not one out of the textbook about how to uh, to get into seaplane flying or to to follow your aviation dreams mate but um, you're kind of carving your own path which is epic and Shane McCauley, I'd like to thank you for coming on the step, mate. Pleasure, mate. Thanks for having us. What a bloody terrific chat that was with Shane McCauley. You should definitely go and check him out 
on Instagram at Shane McCauley. That's S-H-A-Y-N-E-M-C-A-U-L-A-Y. Bit of a complicated name there, Shane. Also, folks, if you love this episode, then don't forget to leave me a review and get in touch and say hello. Before we go, I am very excited about episode 16, as it's all about owning the coolest private seaplane one could ever imagine, as well as being the bigger brother of the Mallard. That's right, folks, we're talking all about the Grumman Albatross. So I live on a lake that's seven minutes from the airport here, so our main thing is to fly over to that lake or a lake like it. We take our friends with us, and you can climb up on the wing and jump in there. People can party in the back. Obviously, we can't do that in the front. Uh, we just have fun with it and do air shows. That's all we do. Really looking forward to that one, everyone. But until next time, thanks for coming on The Step. <laughs>